0: Our top story today. Destination Canada says demand for hotels in Metro Vancouver is only going to grow. And that we need 20,000 new hotel rooms by 2050. Now, it's a long way off, but remember something, folks. It does take time to build hotels. And if new hotels are in the cards... We're going to find out if the city of Vancouver is uh, is pro hotels. Uh, Are they going to uh, enforce? Are they going to expedite permits? This could be a loss of billions of dollars in revenue for the provincial economy. We're going to be talking to Sarah Kirby Young with City Council to see what she has to say about it. Um, We're also going to look ahead to some contests here. Uh, We're going to be giving away tickets to the Whitecaps, and that's coming up later in the show. But first. Let's bring in Sarah Kirby-Young to talk about what Destination Canada's uh, report has revealed. Hi, Sarah. Hi, good morning. Uh, Good afternoon. afternoon. In that (laughs) same report, it's been a long morning for you, I can tell. Um, In that same report, it was determined that 10,000 rooms are needed just for Vancouver alone. What can the city do to expedite that?
1: Yeah, so this is, uh, I think uh, it's great that Destination Vancouver has quantified and given us the specific goal that we need to hit to ensure that we are meeting demand and not limiting the growth of our tourism sector. Uh, I can give you an example of one of the things that Council can do. Uh, Recently, we approved an expedited planning process for the Granville Entertainment District. And we recognize that hotels are a perfect fit uh, right in the heart of downtown Vancouver in the Entertainment District. And we don't need to wait for the results of that planning study to bring those projects forward. So Council gave direction to allow those new hotel projects to be uh, those applications to come forward
0: while that planning process is happening. Where can we build these hotels? Is there space?
1: Uh, Yeah, absolutely there's space. It's really a question of ensuring that the zoning allows for those hotels to be built. So the Broadway uh, corridor with the expansion um, of the Broadway line out to Arbutus is a great example uh, where we have another potential to bring in hotels that are well served by rapid transit. Um, And it's really about ensuring that our zoning policies allow for flexible use because it's quite expensive to build new hotels now, just like rental housing. Um, And so it makes a lot of sense to allow mixed use in buildings. So you could have a building that's part office space, for example, and part hotel.
0: What about Nordstrom uh, leaving Vancouver and the loss of the Four Seasons at Pacific Centre? Is that a viable spot?
1: Uh, well, that's a perfect uh, location for a hotel if the property owner would like to consider that. We, as you said, we saw the four, four Seasons go out of the heart of downtown, and you know a lot of people like to stay close to the hub where you've got the convention center down there. Um, a lot of the you know the new Vancouver Art Gallery is going to be coming in. Um, lots of the sporting events and things
0: happening downtown. So um, I think that that would be a perfect location for a hotel. Do you know what the situation is like now in getting a room and what it costs? Uh, Well, Vancouver has become
1: really expensive. Our, what they call ADR, or average daily rate, um, is now north of $400, depending upon the time of year. Our peak season is typically in the summertime. Our busiest months in Vancouver are July and August, uh, which is typically when you have no rooms available. um, But you're seeing those high rates prevail throughout the year now, even in what was formerly called the lower season, uh, just because we don't have the inventory.
0: You know, we have some major events coming up: the Invictus Games, the Grey Cup. What do you anticipate happening there?
1: Well, I think you know what this points out is that now we've got this goal, and if we, you know, build it, and we're short, for example, ten thousand hotel rooms in the city of Vancouver specifically. Um, I heard recently about a project that wants to come forward with a new hotel downtown on Richard Street at five hundred rooms. So. Uh, We know we need to build about 20 of those um, in order to ensure that we've got enough rooms that people can come and visit us and stay in. Um, But I think it's really exciting. All of the possible events that we can bid on um, and that can come to Vancouver creates great excitement in our city, great things to do. But the economic impact is huge uh, because people don't just come and stay in the hotel. They are eating at restaurants and they are shopping in the local retail and they're, supporting the arts and culture sector. So I, I think this is a huge economic opportunity. And if we turn it around and say it's not just what we're short, it's about what we actually can gain.
0: There are certainly a lot of spin offs, but affordability is an issue in this city. How do you balance that with the needs of businesses who benefit from tourism?
1: Uh, well, I think uh, with respect to affordability, building new hotel rooms also helps with the housing supply because you see in the market more pressure, uh, more people are inclined to try to short-term rental out their homes, even though Vancouver has put policies in place that you can only short-term rent your primary residence, for example. Um, Human nature being what it is, that uh, there's more pressure to try to offer um, and take rooms out of the housing supply for locals when you don't have enough hotel rooms. So I think that from an affordability perspective, that works hand in hand.
0: Okay, Sarah, thanks so much for your time this afternoon. In 2021, when the Taliban took over Afghanistan, it basically set back any form of democracy in that country. It also set back women's rights. Women were shut out of society. They're banned from working. Girls aren't allowed to go to school. But at the University of British Columbia, a new program has provided academic sanctuary for three female judges who arrived here from Afghanistan. And one of those women is Wahida Rahimi. She's with the Allard School of Law, at UBC, Wahida, welcome to the Jill Bennett Show. Mm, thank you so much, Wahida, can I'm very you... happy to be here. That's terrific, Wahida. Can you tell me what this program will involve for you?
2: Um, yeah, so the program uh, actually, they have uh, tried to create the program before uh, I was uh, before I came to Canada. So there was a program when they knew about you know what has happening in Afghanistan and with the judges. So uh, there was a kind of uh, very kindness and thoughtfulness of the university that they thought that there might be uh, judges who will be coming to Canada. And uh, I came to Canada. So the program uh, usually uh, involves or kind of uh, help us to Uh, create the stories or want to uh, express the situation of women over there and the situation of us through the years of uh, being as a judge or mostly, uh, I'm not that much experience of having 20 years of experience, but obviously uh, trying to express uh, how it was to be a judge in a country like Afghanistan, what was the good point and what we have learned over there. So mostly, basically, the experience and the situation and what women have
0: done. What expertise do you think you can provide to this program?
2: No, I do have good intentions toward the program, but uh, as I've said with the program and the university, after my application with the program, that uh, it might take longer, but I'll try my best to try to express uh, the real Anecdotal evidence or uh, ma- stories, which are completely unheard, or just in a part of society where women had no other uh, kind of like they were they weren't aware of their rights or their what they have to do, what they are meant to be treated. Uh, so it's kind of small stories, but I feel they will make a very good impact. And uh, usually in this society, and uh, try to uh, attract or affect on people to uh, the international society uh, to uh, focus more uh, on the situation of women and girls right now.
0: When so you were part of the work. when you were in Afghanistan, you heard cases on violence against women. How will that factor into your research?
2: Oh, actually, I really want to focus uh, on that part of it because that's uh, what, uh, that's my expertise. I feel like every woman or every woman who worked in Afghanistan or men, they all have a kind of expertise or knowledge. Uh, and uh, it's not uh, just what they have read, what they have learned over there, but also what they experience. So, because I have the experience of being in contact, close contact, for four years with these women, and uh, solving the cases, different cases, and uh, uh, from different uh, perspective and point of view, uh, so it's really uh, unique and very uh, impressive to write it down or to maybe express it as a pre- presentation, uh, and to um, kind
3: of—it's
2: uh, not always a kind of. Uh, showing the world the bad side, no, showing the world the reality or the beauties or maybe some downsides of it. So it's really important to have the first hand experience and to try to
0: narrate that. I feel that's a very uh, unique uh, idea. This is a passion project for you, though, isn't it?
2: Yeah, actually, it's my, uh, uh, I really uh, love uh, the surprises of life and how everything changes. Uh, but I always admire the past also. So I feel it's kind of, I've named the project kind of turning back to myself and to my journey and to some other judges who might have the same idea, like how we turn to be a judge, how our own life changes after experiencing, after meeting other women from our own community who are not uh, well-placed or who doesn't have uh the ability or the situation that we have so it's kind of very eye opener i think for me and for others
0: can you tell me what your experiences, experience was like being a judge in afghanistan did you experience threats
2: <laughs> uh yeah actually before i decided to be a judge it's kind of uh, i never thought of being a judge when i was at law school when i first joined law school because it was very I never thought I would be able to do that. I was kind of a shy person, but uh, it really grew and it really uh, somehow uh, my mindset changed through the years. And after just uh, many months when I just started uh, collecting myself somehow and I decided to be a judge. But even on that time, the process was very hard for me because I knew what I was Mm, like the way that I was going to be a judge, it's full of threats and it was always there for me. And I don't remember
0: a day that I forgot about it. So it's part of the journey always. Was it easy though? Was it, I mean, it must not have been easy. Uh,
2: I believe life is not easy and we shouldn't expect it to be easy. I always love the idea of how challenging the life is and how hard it is. And it's meant to be that way. So I admire it. I love it. I think it made me the person I am. So I have no complaints, but it wasn't easy. It was very difficult.
0: What are you hearing about the situation in Afghanistan for women who were in professional roles like you?
2: Most of the, the actually, I feel terrible. And I feel very sad for, even for myself, that's why I left the country, why we should do this but i think there was no option left because we have stayed there beyond everything like even security problems all these threats we were ignoring them just to be there just to be someone who can change the country or put a small break on the uh, rebuilding of the country but when there was no other chance for us when there was totally everything was just destroyed so Yeah, just like me, many other women, many educated girls had no option to just leave. And those who are still there, they're also trying very hard to somehow leave the country. And it's very like, it makes me very sad. But I think uh, there's no option left yet. But we're still trying to like do our best for the country. And somehow maybe one day we'll go back and we will serve it the way we want it.
0: With respect to this new program at UBC, are you trying to recruit more judges like you?
2: Yeah, Uh, I think uh, UBC is trying to, maybe some other judges who are interested, they will come to uh, Vancouver. Maybe we just had another judge. And we are in very good contact. I think uh, approximately we have 40 judges in Canada. So we are part of a group and we know what's going on. So it's kind of very... Mm, good program that we are all connected
0: somehow. Okay, Wahida Rahimi, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Well, psychedelic drugs have been a contentious issue. Now, the Australian government has given the green light to two psychedelics, MDMA and psilocybin. Starting July 1st, psychiatrists will be allowed to prescribe MDMA MA for PTSD, a lot of acronyms here, and psilocybin, also known as the main ingredient in magic mushrooms to treat depression. But where are we at here in Canada? Dr. Monique Moeller joins us now. She's with Field Trip Health. It's a psychedelic therapy company. She's also been a physician with the Centre for Addiction and Mental Health in Toronto. Monique, thanks for joining us. No problem. Thanks for having me, Robin. What was your reaction to this?
4: Uh, I have to say, you know, I'm maintaining some cautious optimism. You know, I'm, um, I'm excited to see that uh, we, we have one of our Commonwealth nations moving forward in this direction. But certainly keeping a really close eye on it and have a lot of questions that I'm looking to get answered in the next several months or year as this sort of un, um,
0: unrolls or uh, yeah moves forward. Where are we at with our government when it comes to these psychedelics? That's a great question. So
4: currently, it's kind of uh, province by province decision making. So Alberta in January made an announcement that they would be moving forward um, in uh, creating its own system for psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, where licensed practitioners or approved practitioners would be able to provide these treatments, um, including MDMA and psilocybin. Um, Quebec also has made some moves. So in December, they became the first province to announce that they would provide health coverage for the cost of psilocybin assisted therapy. Um, So we're, we're kind of, Waiting uh, in Ontario to see whether, whether our province will follow suit. I, I do practice in Toronto and Ontario. Um, but right now, um, it's, it seems to be individualistic uh, in terms of the province level. And we're waiting on the federal government to kind of make a move or a decision. And my hope is that with this kind of decision in Australia, that this is going to be the case for us, not to a uh, distant future
0: let's talk about MDMA first as a drug. What are the benefits of this? What types of patients can and can't use it?
4: So there have been a number of uh, large um, clinical trials, uh, most recently phase three clinical trials that have been uh, published in our literature, uh, mostly um, supported by the MAPS organization uh, based in the United States. Um, to evaluate whether MDMA could be an effective treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder. And it seems by and large that this evidence is kind of like a slam dunk, I would say, um, that, you know, consistently the results show that it is in a very effective treatment for PTSD. And this is sort of in light of the fact that we don't really have great treatment options as it is right now for PTSD management or treatment. So this is kind of, Uh, shining a new light um, or sort of hope uh, in in treating this um, traditionally very difficult um, mental illness. So I'm excited about that. I think it's really promising. Um, The drug itself is an amphetamine-based stimulant. It sounds a little bit scary, but what it does is it creates a a beautiful sort of sense of safety for clients or patients that take it, and they're able to essentially explore and unpack and reprocess traumatic um, images or memories that may have happened to them, um, with the support, of course, of uh, licensed psychotherapists or um, highly trained facilitators, so um, you know patients are able to essentially move through their index trauma in a safe, uh, in a safe way, in a safe environment. And doing so helps really relieve the symptoms. And actually, over 60 to 70% of patients that are treated with MDMA um, experience a curative result, so their PTSD is cured after only three medicine sessions, which is really remarkable, especially when we compare traditional
0: management um, today. And when it comes to psilocybin, does it work in the Mm -hmm. same way?
4: Psilocybin is, um, so it works differently than MDMA. MDMA is considered an empathogen, uh, so it's not a classic psychedelic. Psilocybin is a classic psychedelic. It works on serotonin. Um, And psilocybin has predominantly been studied for treatment, refractory depression. So it's a different cohort of patients also seeing incredibly promising results. We've also been studying um, psilocybin to treat multiple other uh, mental health conditions such as OCD, alcohol use disorder, nicotine use disorder, Um, The list goes on and on. And uh, I think, you know, our colleagues in the field are getting really excited about the results we're seeing. And so we're hoping that this is going to broaden um, in terms of uh, the indications that we can use psilocybin for.
0: I know here in Vancouver, there are so many magic mushroom shops. I mean, Mm -hmm. we called it a shroom boom at one point. Yeah. And the police don't really monitor it much like they turned a blind eye to illegal cannabis shops, but then cannabis Mm -hmm. became legal. Is it just a matter of time that mushrooms will become legal?
4: My my instinct and my gut is telling me to say yes to you. I mean, of course, we don't have a crystal ball, but I my hope is that that's the way things are going. Um, you know, I think that, you know, the train has kind of already left the station in a lot of ways. You're, you're alluding to this, but, you know, we can already find mushrooms in these brick-and-mortar shops. You know, Toronto has the same thing, and certainly the underground market we know is booming. And I think it's really prudent now that the federal government steps up and makes these treatments available so that, patients can have access to specialized and highly supportive care instead of experimenting and self-medicating on their own or with underground facilitators who may not have adequate training to guide them. So this is really the move I'm hoping that we're going to be able to take soon.
0: But why is there opposition to it? It's a good question. I
4: think that there's a lot of apprehensiveness uh, because of what happened in the 60s and 70s. You know, a lot of stigma has been placed on psychedelics, Um due to you know, what I like to call propaganda at the time, not necessarily evidence-based or science-based, um, but certainly there was a lot of fear instilled in the general public, government officials, and what have you. And so I think that people are just treading very carefully and lightly because of that.
0: That's the Timothy Leary era, right? I remember the psychedelic era. Um, I do know that uh, there was actually research being conducted in Weyburn, Saskatchewan, of all places. And I actually Mm -hmm. lived in Saskatchewan when the hospital that was looking into this was shut down. Um, What happened there? Um, Well, I think
4: this was largely contingent on the political movements that were happening at the time in the United States. And again, this is kind of alluding to this idea of um, you know the propaganda I know a lot of incredible research and science was being done um, at the time in Saskatchewan in particular Humphrey Osmond and Abram Hoffer were the uh, the two clinicians that were spearheading that Um, and they were getting incredible results you know like over 60 percent of patients treated with a single dose of LSD were completely abstinent from alcohol after an entire year after their treatment which is phenomenal if you consider that the response rates for traditional, um, uh, alcohol addiction therapies now. Um, but I do think that it was largely politically based. And, uh, unfortunately a lot of research, pro- probably all research was halted and, and some of it was pushed underground, but predominantly it was just halted, uh, in its entirety. So that's, that's essentially what happened.
0: But the research that's happening right now, there is oversight. There certainly is. Yeah, you know, Health Canada did um,
4: actually grant a uh, big proposal to um, a clinical investigator at the Centre for Addiction and Mental Health for uh, evaluating um, some of the components of uh, magic mushrooms to treat uh, to treat depression. So that's really exciting. I think that was one of the first big research grants that were um, that were approved by Health Canada, and I think that's. Uh, very telling of the direction in which we're going to be able to go in this country. It's only a matter of time that more research dollars are going to be uh, allocated toward this field. And I think it's about time because I I really do believe that these medicines are game changers in mental health care.
0: I think we're going to see a lot more research on this. Monique Muller, thanks for your time. You're most welcome. Thank you so much for having me. to the big story today. Destination Canada says demand for hotels in Metro Vancouver is going to grow, that we're going to need 20,000 new hotel rooms by 2050. That's for the entire Lower Mainland, but 10,000 specifically here in Vancouver, that this could be a loss of billions of dollars in spin-off revenue for the provincial economy. Ingrid Jarrett is with the BC Hotel Association. She joins us now. Ingrid, do those numbers make sense to you? Good afternoon, Robin. Absolutely, they do. We've been working
5: uh, for quite some time now with Destination Vancouver and our partners at the Hotel Association of Canada. And, you know, the importance here is to understand the changing landscape in downtown Vancouver over the last few years. There has been uh, many hotels that have been transitioned into residential And that's because of the very dire uh, situation around affordability and the amount of uh, properties that are available uh, to rent. In addition to that, the last three years, of course, with the pandemic, we saw um, quite a few hotels and hotel rooms transition from hotels and motels into housing uh, from the province of British Columbia who were really committed to looking after their most vulnerable. So, not only have we seen a strong uh, continuation in the demand and the need for hotels, uh, but at the same time have seen a reduction in supply.
0: So, where can we build these hotels? Is there space?
5: Well, there certainly is. There, we have uh, very specific opportunities. Uh, most of it is uh, private investment, some of it partnership. I think the, the way that we're looking at hotels uh, downtown, certainly most of them would be hotel, residential, and potentially some commercial, so that you don't have uh, a completely, um, you know, what used to be known as a full hotel site and that you would build residential into it. And that's really because of the priority of the city and the province to ensure the livability and the affordability. And what does the community or that, you know, sort of sub part of downtown Vancouver look like? There are uh, significant opportunities, and I'm going to say between five and ten locations, uh, where there actually has been done a significant amount of work to evaluate what would what would be needed and what kind of hotel should go in there. We're really excited to support and be working with Destination Vancouver in our industry because Vancouver increasingly is seen on the world stage as one of the most desirable cities. But we do need the hotel inventory that supports meetings and conferences and also the uh, livability and working within the city.
0: Well, take a pl- uh, take a look at the fact that Nordstrom is wrapping up here at Pacific Center. Is that an opportune opportunity or an opportune space?
5: Oh, uh, I, that <laughs> space has not been. Uh, it's had some bad luck. No, <laughs> no. That's a that is a purpose built retail space. So uh, that that does not, at this point, look like it would transition to a hotel.
0: Do you think that cities in this region are on side with building more hotels?
5: I think they are because they understand the contribution, not only from a tax perspective, but also that, uh, again, you know, you're living and working and being a partner in a city or a community as a, as a business. And it's important that people can, live and work in our cities and not necessarily live elsewhere and then work downtown. So I think the approach to uh, the community affordability and the goals and desires of the city with the private uh, industry, who certainly are looking at building hotels, um, I think it's a win-win-win.
0: Looking ahead to the summer season that's coming up, what's it going to be like to get a room and is it going to be expensive?
5: Well, you know, the demand is is always strong in the summer season in Vancouver. And this year, hopefully, will be no different. Um, But it is an indicator that when you do not have enough inventory, so there's not enough hotel rooms, there is pressure on the market. And we know that, you know, Cruises is, is looking at a strong 2023 Our meetings and conventions are lagging the leisure business, but we are seeing a strong demand for Vancouver uh, from many, many markets. So I anticipate that it could well perform similarly to 2022.
0: You talk about demand. Let's take a look at the fact that the Invictus Games are coming here. The Grey Cup is coming here. Do you think that there'll be a shortage of rooms or do you think people cancel at the last minute?
5: Um, not necessarily. I mean, the Grey Cup is in the fall, and that is not a time when there is pressure on room inventory. Uh, you know, the important thing is is that we're building out year-round business. And those large sporting events definitely contribute and support a certain uh, component of the demand coming into Vancouver. But the goal here is is that we ensure that we are seen and that we you know, that we report uh, successfully on year-round business, not just seasonal high-season business, which certainly we all know the summer is the busiest time in Vancouver. We need to focus and really work on those shoulder seasons, which would be spring and fall and, of course, the winter. And so um, I think continuing demand on the summer will see that there is uh, a limitation on availability for summer rooms. Uh, but our, our job here is to make sure that we're supporting the thoughtful growth of the industry and that it is, um, reflecting the community master plan and that we're working directly with the city.
0: Just one final question. Are hotels still experiencing a labor shortage?
5: Uh, very much so. Yes.
0: So how's hiring going?
6: <laughs> well, <laughs> we
5: <laughs> this is a huge amount of work that we're doing right now and, and, um, I can say I'm I'm very encouraged with the um the different strategies that we have been able to um implement over the last couple of years but you know if this is not easy and it and it is not we're not going to be able to address it overnight we have more people retiring than coming into the workforce regardless of what the industry is and we really need to focus on retention. And we also need to focus on people within British Columbia who are currently underemployed or unemployed, as well as ensuring that in high school programs, universities and colleges, that there reflects co-op and training programs that also are aligned with those demand times for the industry. Ingrid, and I have, to, in I have to cut
0: you off right now. We're running out of okay. time, but I, I really appreciate your insight on this. Yeah, thanks so much, Robin. A big story that's been making headlines for weeks, Surrey's proposed tax hike. There will be fireworks, I'm sure, at the first public meeting in Surrey that's happening tonight since that city's council announced a double-digit tax hike. We're talking 17.5%. I have been a City Hall reporter in my in my previous lifetime. I've never seen a double-digit hike like this. And we're going to talk to a very outspoken city councillor in Surrey, Linda Annis. Hi, Linda. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Well, let me ask you this. I'm going to cut to the chase. How ticked off are people?
7: People are very, very upset about it. You know, it, everyone's struggling financially, food prices, and Everything seems to be going up, and to add this 17.5% property increase tax is just horrific, and uh, people are very upset. For the average household, it means that their property taxes will be going up over $400 per year.
0: Could you see people defaulting on making their payments?
7: Well, I don't think that's an option, unfortunately. I, you know, I don't. I hope people can afford to pay them. I, well, I know that they can't afford, but they will need to pay them still. You know, that's the law. You have to pay your property taxes unless, of course, you are a senior and can take a deferment.
0: Is there any wiggle room to whittle this number down?
7: Well, I sure hope so. In about half an hour, we're going to have a public hearing that will be starting where people can come and express their opinions about the tax increase and after that uh, uh, as councillors and the mayor we will vote on um, the increases and hopefully we'll be able to find some middle ground somewhere uh, to make it a little bit more appealing to the residents.
0: From your point of view how did it get so bad?
7: Well there's a couple of things that have uh, come into it. First of all we did very little improvement in our roads over the past four years. There was a lot of um, holdbacks in terms of hiring staff. I can say one very good thing in the budget is that we are hiring additional firefighters, uh, another fire truck. Uh, We have some police officers and we're hiring more staff at city hall. We haven't hired for a number of years now. So that's a really good thing. The big um, elephant in the room, if you will, is the, um, Uh, transition back to the RCMP and the $89 million severance package that would have to be paid to the Surrey Police Service officers if uh, Mr. Farnworth, or Minister Farnworth, I should say, uh, approves the uh, transition back to the RCMP.
0: You're calling for an audit though. How realistic is that?
7: Well, I think we should have done that right from the get-go. This is taxpayers' money. It's not our money as city councillors, and we need to be accountable. We're not seeing the set of numbers from, you know, the Surrey Police Service, from the RCMP, from the city. We all need to be working with the same set of numbers and doing it in an open and transparent way. And I do believe, you know, because it is such a controversial subject and something that is certainly the largest decision that i will make as a counselor i think we need to be open and transparent and ensure that our residents know what the true costs are
0: what do you think of that severance package though for the surrey police service
7: well i don't understand it to be honest with you because i you know i believe it's based on 50 percent of the members uh, transitioning over to um, the rcmp but i don't know how we know that number it could be more it could be significantly less to me uh, with an item that's that large, you know, we need to do a little bit more um, homework on it.
0: You talked about Mike Harnworth having to take on the responsibility of determining whether the RCMP returns or the police service remains. Was it fair to punt it to the province?
7: Well, the province ultimately is responsible for policing in, in British Columbia. And what happens in Surrey affects all of the province. Uh, you know, we, there are a shortage of police officers throughout uh, British Columbia right now, and Minister Farnworth is charged to make sure that public safety in Surrey and throughout British Columbia isn't put in any jeopardy as a result of a decision that we would make here in Surrey.
0: But Linda, don't you think Surrey City Council should be making this decision?
7: No, I don't. I, I do believe that uh, Minister Farnworth needs to step in because what we do here affects other membering jurisdictions, Vancouver, uh, even as far as Prince George or, or and beyond, and we don't have control over what happens up there. So he needs to look at it as the head of policing services. Ultimately, all of policing in Surrey falls to the responsibility of Minister Farnworth, so he needs to make sure that things are done in a coordinated approach.
0: What side do you think he's going to land on? Any predictions?
7: I have no predictions. Uh, You know, it's only Minister Farnworth knows, and I'm not sure that he does at this point. He's still gathering information and trying to uh, make sure that he can make the best decision possible for the British Columbians and for the residents of Surrey.
0: Your mayor, though, she ran on a campaign to return to the RCMP. Was that a good strategy? Was that a good platform idea? Well, I
7: quite frankly think we should have uh, had a referendum for our residents in Surrey. It's been very divisive right since 2018 when uh, the former mayor was hired and I think, or elected, I should say. uh, And I think it's been so divisive. What we really needed to do was put the actual facts on the table and let the residents who are going to be paying the bill ultimately decide which way we should go.
0: What kind of legal ramifications could come out of this?
7: I'm not a lawyer, so I really couldn't answer that.
0: I know that Brenda Locke was on CKNW a few weeks ago, and she talked about potential lawsuits. I mean, can you afford that as a city council trying to, like, boost taxes by 17.5%?
7: Well, I think whatever Minister Farnworth decides, we need to get on with it and get moving in that direction. This has been an issue that's been all-consuming for the residents of Surrey and for City Council, for that matter. Once the minister has made that decision, we need to get on with it and get back to business and start
0: building the great city that we have here in Surrey. Tonight's public meeting, do you think fireworks are going to be imploding?
7: Well, I think people are going to be very passionate. Now, I might just... uh, say one thing that the public hearing is from two to four o'clock today it may go longer depending on the number of speakers but tonight there's not the opportunity for people to speak on it it's actually happening in the afternoon
0: okay linda Annis, thank you so much for your time
7: my pleasure
0: well here's another use for artificial intelligence detecting potholes the city of vancouver of victoria that is has launched an ai app to try it out so how's it going well, let's find out. Philip Belfontaine is the Director of Engineering with the City of Victoria, and he joins us now. Hey, Phil. Hello there, Robin. How did this come on your radar? Well, it's uh, something that the city's
3: always trying to do. Uh, we, we like to see ourselves as a, a smart city and using technology in all sorts of our services. So we're always on the lookout for this new kind of technology. And we know a number of other municipalities that be using this particular equipment. So we thought we'd give it a go. How does it work? It's, uh, it's really, really straightforward. It's a, uh, a small handheld-sized uh, device that we can install within the cab of one of our trucks. And as that truck drives around the city, it scans the road ahead of it, looking at the number of potholes, the size of potholes and so on. And then it turns that into really, really valuable data for us back at the office to then map out where these potholes are and then allow us to plan In a very systematic way uh, where we go and fill them.
0: How much time on the roads are these engineers or road supervisors driving around with this app? Well, this is
3: one of the great advantages of it. It's not something that we have to do specially. Um, We're actually uh, contemplating attaching them to our uh, refuse vehicles, which are out and about anyway. So we can double up the the use of those vehicles which are collecting uh, residential waste and at the same time collecting this valuable data. And it's a lot, lot more efficient than the old way of doing things where uh, our crews would, would be going out in a vehicle looking for potholes. So it's efficient, it's systematic, and it's good value for money.
0: How does it compare with having to investigate when residents tell you about it or complain about it?
3: That's probably the worst way we can we can look at this this issue Um, we do value that input from residents and we'll continue to seek that information but that comes sporadically it's not systematic it's based on people you know wanting to if you like get on the phone and get in touch with us uh, and it doesn't give us the full story so this this equipment allows us to look across the whole city and properly uh, prioritise and again, systematically go and look at where the issues are and deal with them.
0: How many potholes have you discovered with this?
3: Well, last year the city filled about 2,500 potholes and that was in 2022. And it's not cheap. We spend about $800,000 a year maintaining our roads. Uh, We're waiting for the results on um, what uh, this data, this uh, equipment is giving us. But we are already seeing fewer people phoning in because we are proactively going out and filling these holes. Uh, The other thing I'd like to say is I'd rather have no potholes at all in Victoria. And that's why we're also uh, spending more budget on repaving of roads. And we're also seeing the benefits of that with fewer calls for or people phoning up looking, for, um, asking for us to fill potholes.
0: Oh, I have no doubt that many drivers agree with you that they don't want to see potholes. Okay, so once you detect a deficiency or a pothole, how quickly can you act on fixing it? Well, that's the, something we need to do, and
3: that's where this tool is really, really helpful, because it helps us prioritize, because not all potholes are the same. For example, if we have a particular issue where the pothole is deep and large and is, has a safety concerned we can be out there within a few hours whereas another location where we may have had something that's um, starting to form that gives us that little bit more time to plan and ideally then look at a number of locations at the same time so that we're not dispatching crews randomly to different parts of the city so that when they are dispatched they can hit a number of sites at the same time. So it's really, really good to help us prioritise for safety uh, reasons too.
0: How much does this? How much is this program costing the city?
3: Well, this is one of the great things about it. It's uh, it's very uh, affordable. So uh, the pilot, uh, which is running for six months, is uh, costing the city about five thousand uh, dollars. That's a lot of money to you know a typical household. But when we're talking about spending uh, close to nine million dollars a year. Uh, on paving of our roads, you can see that if we invest that money well uh, and really identify lots of of these issues, it's really good value for money.
0: This is a six-month pilot project. Any thought to extending it?
3: Yes, it's looking like we we are really pleased with it. Um, It's a very valuable tool in our toolbox, and um, uh, we are likely to be continuing to use it moving forward. Uh, But we'll have those discussions with the vendor coming up in the next month or two.
0: You know, the big debate with artificial intelligence is, are you replacing humans? (laughs) No,
3: we're not. Um, This is all about uh, we we need humans to do this work for us because what this does it gives us data, but you still need that human to go away and look at it and prioritize and make those judgment calls about where we send crews and where we spend the dollars. So absolutely not.
0: You talked about other municipalities using this app. Uh, what have the results have been? What have what are the results? Uh, has there been success or has have there been issues?
3: Um, I'm not aware of any uh, direct data on, on uh, what other municipalities have seen. I think within BC we're one of the sort of early adapters. I think there's maybe uh, two or three others. I think we're the first certainly on Vancouver Island. Uh, so I, unfortunately I don't have that sort of information to hand.
0: Well, I think this is such an interesting idea. I have, to, I have to say, I didn't even think about artificial intelligence involving bottles. Right now, I'm thinking about artificial intelligence replacing me. <laughs> <laughs>
3: no, and eight, eight months ago, I didn't know um, it. It was something that we could use. So that's why we're really excited to be trying it out. And uh, yes, it's, our crews are finding it really valuable to help them do their jobs better
0: beyond the uh, department of engineering is this something that could be applied to other city services or other uh, other uh, departments uh,
3: i think this is very specific to what we're talking about which is the condition of our roads uh, we we also already use quite a lot of technology on assessing our road condition where every 3 years we do a full city-wide scan of our roads uh, to look at the condition and that helps us plan our multi-year Uh, capital investments but as i said at the outset the city is always looking to see if there's opportunities for technology to help us uh, do our jobs better uh, and uh, more efficiently but yeah this is very much specific to this tool but i'm sure there are other other applications um, for artificial intelligence as we move forward and we'll always be keeping an eye out for those
0: all right philip belfontaine director of engineering with the city of victoria thanks for your time my pleasure We're going to talk about more and more British Columbians experiencing food insecurity because of these high food prices. But there is an app, and it's called Foodlink, and it's meant to help. We have Elzabetta Sabova from the United Way to talk about this. Hi, Elzabetta.
6: Hi, good
0: afternoon. Thanks for
6: coming on. How does it work, by the way? Yeah it's a really innovative app and um, it's basically a solution to address the need for reliable access to nourishing commu- food in communities. So our community organizations, our partners, communities can go on this app and submit all of their food needs that they're seeing in their programs. So imagine meal programs and hamper programs, now, um, these, these organizations have a way to submit a shopping list. Basically, they, they submit what they need and suppliers can then address those needs directly in those communities. So does it work with food banks? So food banks are a really good partner. They're obviously a very really good supplier. But we see that the need in our communities is much larger than what one organization can address. Um, so, well. so we are working with them very closely. But we also work with many other partners, our retailers small food producers, farmers in little communities, even in rural remote areas of B.C.
0: What about major grocery stores? Are they on board?
6: Absolutely. They're obviously a big partner, especially in the urban centres. We are piloting in Surrey and Upper Fraser Valley, and we know that these partners need to come on board as well. And they've been very responsive to understand that we have this issue in our communities and, and we need to all work together.
0: Where is the greatest need in the province?
6: That's a great question. We actually see the need all across BC, um, but some of the communities in more rural, remote areas, as well as indigenous communities, are experiencing food security in the numbers around 30 to 40 percent, which means 30 to 40 percent of people are sometimes struggling to put food on the table. And that's a very large number.
0: What about providing needs for our multicultural communities? Is there is there an agency that's helping with that?
6: There's many agencies that do help with that. And actually, um, one of the great things about FoodLink is that it actually will consider um, those organizations and communities and even small groups um, that traditionally might not be able to, to access some of the support and would prioritize their needs um, to really reach the support they need as well.
0: What kind of reception have you had? How many people have been signing up?
6: So we have had a great success, so we are piloting in three communities as of now in Surrey, in Upper Fraser Valley of Chilliwack and Vernon, and we have over fifteen organizations that are already signed up and but we also saw over one hundred and fifty volunteers already already reaching out, and we haven't even went out with that so as of today, I'll check the numbers, but i'm I'm assuming hundreds at this point. You
0: don't have an exact number on the uh, on the number of people who are actually needing this and using this
6: so the the need in communities as I mentioned is thirteen to fourteen percent. We know that around seven hundred thousand people in BC could benefit from this service once we are provincial.
0: Do you think though that you're competing with food banks? Or is this just an an enhancement?
6: It's absolutely an enhancement. In fact food banks BC have been part of the development and have been on our on our advisory board to really ensure that we are not duplicating, that we are not just you know, doing something that's already been there that's not our intention. We've seen the gap. And so we work with the partners, we've worked with food banks to address that. So this 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 actually will be beneficial for their services as well. You
0: say that there's a need for volunteers. How many volunteers do you need? What kind of work would they be doing?
6: Excellent question. So we do need volunteer drivers. Um they will be the link between suppliers and between the communities that are in need of of food donations so at this point we are recruiting volunteers in surrey in Chilliwack, and in vernon and they can um, sign up to our web page um uwbc.ca um slash food security they're all links and they can just submit their their information and our team will be in touch with them and onboard them on the app
0: are there any personal stories that you can share with us from people who've benefited from this program
6: So as the program is just launching, what I I can imagine is that we are much more able to address the needs of individuals. So um, that's something that we always struggle with, making sure that even the unique needs, dietary needs, needs for traditional food, um, will be able to be addressed. So I'm really excited to hear stories from communities where even culture-appropriate food is now or will be available to families and um, for example immigrant families and um, to really to really reach in any given point
0: how are you how are you guys doing with with families who are experiencing food insecurity how is your organization dealing with it with besides yeah, so, this app
6: so, yeah, so, so so food security in the United Way, BC. It's a it's a big initiative supporting over twenty regions across BC um, with programs anywhere from meal programs to hamper programs, as well as educational programs and programs such as your community gardens. Because we see that it's not only about distribution of food; it's also about teaching skills and knowledge about food preparation and growing food. So at this point, we are working with um, over 150 organizations across B.C. Um, to deliver these programs, to build upon these programs, to expand programs, and to also ensure that there is no lineups in and, and these programs in those regions.
0: Okay, Elzebeta Sabova with the United Way. Thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Thank you so much.